Well, since the last time we met, uh, the world is changing rapidly. The things are not going well in Libya, and uh, that is still a very, very uh, touchy, touchy spot. And then, of course, there was the earthquake uh, in Japan the other day. Uh, I had just told my class in God and Human Suffering on Thursday that there were three events that changed the world. Three event, events that, <coughs> that made people start ri- ri- uh, uh, making questions about God's ways. You know, what, where is God in all of this? And those three events uh, are the Black Death of the 13th century, uh, the Lisbon earthquake in 1755, which had aftershocks, intellectual aftershocks, for uh, about 150 years. And then, of course, the Holocaust in the 20th century. Those three events are events that conspicuously put before human beings the question of what is God doing? Where is God in all of these things? And then I told the class the reason why we are discussing the question of theodicy is not because because of those three events. It is really because the question of theodicy is the first question in the Bible and the question about God's ways. Has God... Has God really said that you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? So the question uh, that we are discuss- were discussing in that class and that we to some extent are discussing in this class is a very biblical question. Last time we, talked, we, we said that we would get into chapter 21, and uh, that was a promise I intended to keep, and now I'm, I'm deci- I have decided to break the promise. Because <laughs> I thought two questions that have come up here uh, the last several several times actually are questions that uh, I said that we would uh, we would discuss those questions at the end. You know when we have done all of the all of Revelation. But then the more I thought about it, the more I felt it will be anticlimactic to do it at the end. We need to do it now in this intermission, in this huge transition between the old world and the new world, as it were going from chapter 20 to chapter 21. So I hope you will not feel, uh, feel that we're wasting our time if we, if we delay just a little at the, ent- uh, at the gate of paradise, as it were, here in Revelation 20. So we're not uh, discussing so much anything specific in Revelation 20 today. We're, we're doing more of a general retrospective uh, on our subject. So uh, let's just do this review. Uh, I got one of my assistants to make me this slide because I thought it was quite nice to put it up like this. Johannine eschatology, assuming that the author of the Revelation and the author of the Gospel of John could be the same person or that they cert- at least are, op- ocu- uh, uh, that they are uh, operating in the same, the same territory uh, then, of course, Jesus, he will come from heaven. I have, you know, he knew that he had come from God. Uh, he's standing here, and he knew that he was going back to God, so he's going back to heaven. And then he says in the Gospel of John that uh, I go to prepare a place. He's standing here saying that, and when I have gone and have prepared a place, I will come back and take you to myself, that where I am you shall be also. So that movement from earth to heaven is... Uh, is uh, quite conspicuous. Now, when he comes to earth in the second coming, then he doesn't, he, he doesn't even come, as it were. 
Anyway, uh, you see the, the, the picture there, that movement. There is a, a very nice verse in the Gospel of John where, uh, at the end of chapter 1 where Jesus, one of the disciples uh, who is recruited is uh, Nathaniel, one of his earliest disciples. And when Jesus recruits Nathaniel, uh, he, uh, uh, he says to him, uh, you are a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. You know that text. And then Nathaniel says, how do you know me? And Jesus says, I, I saw you before you saw me, which, of course, is always true about in, in, a, in a sort of metaphorical sense. I saw you before you saw me. I saw you under the fig tree, he, said, he says. And then you, could, uh, you and I could wonder what on earth Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree. Uh, I think he, he was in a somewhat compromising po- position, not doing anything indecent. I don't mean to say that. I just mean to say that he was under the fig tree, tree thinking that nobody saw him there. And Jesus somehow saw him. And is actually, you know, how does Jesus know that this is a true Israelite in whom there is no guile? Well, you can, you can imagine whatever you want uh, on that one. And then Nathaniel says, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And, Jesus, and then Jesus says, now because I said I saw you under the fig tree, you believe. You will see greater things than this. You will see the son of man. Something ascending and descending in, in, in sort of, a, a sort of, you'll see heaven open. You will see, you know, this movement from heaven to earth, a, a close, close relationship between heaven and earth, you might say, is in Johannine territory. So I just thought about that. Anyway, you get, this is a kind of summary statement about the, the uh, eschatology that I think we can assume to be valid for the book of Revelation. And the thousand years then will be thousand years spent in heaven, which is uh, uh, somewhat distinct uh, in, in, in this, kind, this interpretation. Just one, uh, one verse here to show uh, the plausibility that we are hearing a Johannine voice, the same voice in the book of Revelation as in the Gospel of John. I just thought since we, we, Daniel asked me, what do you think about the authorship? Didn't you ask that? Yeah, and I, I just made a sort of loose claim. Well, I think it is, you know, it could be the same person. Here is a piece of evidence for that possibility. <clears throat> Jesus is saying in Revelation 3.20, Listen, I'm standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. I will eat with you and you with me. That kind of reciprocity. Whenever you see that kind of reciprocity, you hear the whisper of the fourth gospel, don't you? That sort of that's way of talking. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, John seventeen, twenty one and twenty three. I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one. See this this back and forth movement, I in them and you in me. You see what is what I'm saying? I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. When you, <coughs> that sentence in Revelation 3.20 is a, is a, is a, is a Johannine signature in, Re, in Revelation. Now, some people have seen it. Others who, who doubt that John was the author of the, uh, the book of Revelation have seen that. And they admit that it has a Johannine quality to it. But they don't quite 
want to be persuaded that it could be the same person. So do you see the similarity there? You see the way of talking, the reciprocity? I will come in to you and eat with you and you with me. Why couldn't he just say, I will come in and eat with you? That would have been a good enough sentence. But he must say, you with me, <coughs> because he is John. <laughs> and that is what he's, how he talks, you know, to see that kind of, of, of diction, that kind of paradigm. Let's say that the uh, book of Revelation is written in a different genre. Is it possible for one author to write two books in different genres? Does an author have to write in the same genre for you to believe that he's the same person? We had Richard Bauckham visiting Loma Linda recently. He's written many books. He's written two children's books. You know, if you did not know, if you got, if you got his books, you know, his books written for adults, for specialists in theology, and you looked at those books and his books for children, would you know that it was written by the same person? Would, would, would that be a safe guide to say, well, this author, he writes in one particular genre. He doesn't do children's books, let's say. You know, and suddenly there he was doing children's books, you know, and you could make that kind of, it would not seem to be a very, uh, certainly not a definitive criterion for making that judgment. Well, I'll give you a, a, one more argument in support of the possibility that there is the same person. In the Gospel of John, the most important chapter, now the chapter division is, is arbitrary, the chapter division is not part of the original composition, as you know. But in the Gospel of John, the most important, the, the central chapter, the, the, the most uh, dramatic uh, dividing line or cesura or whatever, however you say that, uh, is in chapter 12. And chapter 12 is also the most important chapter. It's where Jesus moves, where he does a retrospective on what has gone happened up to then, and he does a prospective on what will happen. And then in chapter 12, he tells you the meaning of what he's going to do. Why did he come to the world? He tells you the meaning of this, what he's going to do. Uh, he's actually saying, packing a lot of stuff into chapter 12. Uh, uh, for our topic, the most important thing he is saying there is, now is the judge, 1231, now is the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be thrown out, and I, if I am lifted up from this world, I will draw all men to myself. So, uh, so how does Jesus explain the meaning of his death in the Gospel of John? He explains it within a cosmic conflict paradigm. You know, that's what he's saying. He is there to, to defeat the ruler of this world. And there is no question that the ruler of this world is Satan. I have written a chapter on this in a book uh, on the Gospel of John that Richard Bauckham edited. Uh, I, got, I got permission to give a presentation once at the University of St. Andrews on this topic for a conference on the Gospel of John. And, and I, I called it, uh, my the title of my chapter is The Father of Lies, the Mother of Lies, and the Death of Jesus. <coughs> that's the, 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 you know, but that's not important for this purpose. In Revelation, the most important chapter is chapter 12. There is a sort of what they call a chiastic structure, a sort of X-shape structure to Revelation, more so than the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is not, uh, whether this is accidental or not, I will not say, because I don't think the Gospel of John is structured 
with the sort of meticulous structuring that you have in, in Revelation. But in Revelation, there is no question that, that chapter 12 is, this, is the key chapter. And chapter 12 summarizes the cosmic conflict. And yes, in chapter 12, the, the ruler of this world is defeated, isn't he? Chapter 12, there is a child born to a, to a woman. And the child, uh, the dragon is standing there ready to swallow up the child. And then the child is snatched away to heaven and to the throne of God. And Satan, he is uh, defeated here. And he knows that his time is short. So in some ways, this has also been noted by scholars, by the way. The, the enemy is thrown out here in the Gospel of John in the middle of the story. And the enemy is thrown out here too, defeated here too in the middle of the story in, the, in, in, in Revelation. Theologically, there is no problem to align these two books theologically. The, whole, the problem with authorship is only on the question of of language. So, and, but I think this could be a stronger uh, argument in some ways even than the, the diction, even though I, I think I can hear his voice. I can hear the voice of John in uh, 321. He with me, you with me, I with you and you with me. That's, that's a giveaway, you know. Wow. Oh, it's him. <laughs> that sort of thing. Now, <clears throat> much said about that. Now, just because we were rushed toward the end last time, so <clears throat> let me j just repeat what I thought would be a, a fair conclusion and, and sort of set, set uh, uh, our interpretation apart somewhat. What did we say? We said that there was a final call, the sealing, the great ordeal, all the final opportunity and the battle of Armageddon, all before when? Premillennial, before the second coming. So... That would mean that all that relates to important human decisions, all, the, all the, the sort of where there are important variables as to human choice, will play out before the second coming. That, uh, that, uh, and then, of course, we are saying that at the second coming, Jesus comes to the earth, but he doesn't establish a millennial kingdom on the earth in our paradigm uh, using the Gospel of John to help us. He is sort of coming. The second coming is kind of a rescue mission where he removes the redeemed to heaven. Now, these are, are just big moves, of course. <clears throat> but in most other paradigms, the thousand years is a golden era with new opportunities for, for things to happen, for people to change their relationship to God. And in our paradigm, that is not the case. In, 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 in this paradigm, it's all over here at the second coming. No big changes, no, no moves, no... no, no, no uh, 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 now, when I call this the final deception here, the deception, that's not uh, very accurate terminology because deception, the ones that are deceived here have already been deceived. It is just a manifestation. It's just... He is recruiting from, from his own, as it were, here. So the, there is nothing, there is no, uh, no pro or con, you know, here uh, in, the, in, the, in the final, sort of, in that, in that phase of it. So now, let me just say that many, many views of, of Christian history are millennial views to, in the sense that they envision a golden age before it is all over and then a final battle. Now, secular ideologies are also millennial in, in that sense. Marxism, 
Karl Marx and his view of the you know, trajectory of history is in some ways a millennial view, a view that sees, sees history moving to a better, uh, better reality. And I will say that Marxism's great competitor ideologically, capitalism, American capitalism, is also a millennial view. It is also envisioning a certain, a certain benign, that there is a sort of benign trajectory in history, a sort of Pax Americana here, that, that is really now, that we are sort of living in a millennial age now, a benign age. Uh, and and uh, 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 Francis Fukuyama, have any of you read his book? Francis Fukuyama, he teaches at Harvard University. He's an historian or economist, I'm not sure. His, his, his book is called The End of History, right? And he, where he says that when communism fell, it, history was over, and now you're sort of living in, in the era of liberal de- democracy, and a kind of, he doesn't say so, of course. I am imputing to him. I'm, I am saying that he thinks in, in millennial terms. He thinks that you're moved into a more benign, sort of tranquil phase of liberal democracy, and that is, that is our our secular millennium, as it were. Now, I'm not going to <coughs> go down this road more than this. <laughs> but but uh, <coughs> I'm just saying that the thousand years, the structure of the thousand years in prophetic terms is a structure where the earth is a wasteland. Things are not good on the earth. And then there are other structures, other millennial structures, other millennial ideologies that sees a sort of, you know, they're not calling it a thousand years. Marx didn't do that. And, and the notion that, <coughs> that we live in a, in a, in a benign era, uh, sort of a, 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 an, a, an enlightened and very benign and prosperous era, is in some ways also a millennial trajectory, thinking that something is very benign, Whereas prophecy, whereas the, the trend in the book of Revelation is not in agreement with that, that uh, sort of meta, meta perspective, meta narrative, you might say. I am <coughs> reproducing this slide again because we were rushed last time. Does anybody want to? Uh, uh, we didn't get to discuss it, so maybe there is a comment from the audience on, on that slide that that the timeline of judgment is more diffuse, that there is a pre-advent decision judgment, that, uh, and these terms I have borrowed from Ralph uh, Thompson, there is a, in the thousand years an explanatory judgment, and then his term is a, after the, in the post, you know, after the, in the new earth reality, there is a distributive judgment and, and not a, a retributive judgment. Maybe we said enough about it, so we can just move on. Let's move on then. And I will skip this slide. <coughs> uh, or let me just say that if, you, if I were to assign homework in this class, I would assign as homework to memorize the last of those statements. The judgment at this moment is then to be what one always has actually, to be what one has actually wished to be but seeing it in the light of God, what it was. See, the judgment then would be, the accent for that kind of judgment will be on the human decision, you know, and the divine judgment is just a a revealing, even to us, even to us who decided 
revealing to us what our decision was, while sometimes in this life our decision might not be clear even to ourselves. We might have thought that we had decided something, but, you know, we did decide what we actually wished to be. But then in the judgment, when the judgment comes, it will be revealed in the light of God what it was. So I think Jacques Ellul is extremely helpful for a reading of Revelation, and he's a non-specialist, and that gets me to my next point. <coughs> now, who asked about Nietzsche last time? I don't think she is here now, because I had thrown in some Nietzsche slides uh, earlier that I didn't cover. And, and then I, I, I decided, well, I'm going to do it, and it was by request from the audience, and now, now that person isn't here. And I'm, I don't remember her name. So, but I'll do it anyway because, because I think it is working as a sort of to put things in perspective in a little, in a way that might, uh, might be helpful. Nietzsche is not a new name to uh, most of you, but uh, here is a little a synopsis of, of Nietzsche. Nietzsche was a German, a German philosopher who was born on a date that should have some resonance in an Adventist audience. <coughs> he was born seven days before the Great Disappointment in 1844. <coughs> and <coughs> downstream from 1844, much there, there has been room for plenty of history, hasn't there? there? Much has happened since that time. What else happened in 1844? Karl Marx published his book, I think Das Kapital was was published in 1844, if I don't remember wrongly. And 15 years later, Darwin will publish The Origin of Species. You know, So there is lots of stuff going on here. And here Nietzsche, who is a prodigiously gifted child, uh, is born. And he is a musical, tremendous musical talent. And then he is a, becomes professor of philosophy, I think, in, in Basel, I think, in Switzerland. Uh, I might remember the things. It's not very hugely important, but he was only 24 years old when he is a professor of philosophy. I am much older than that, and I'm only an associate professor. <laughs> <laughs> so my career trajectory has been much slower. <laughs> Let me just digress for a second. <laughs> When I was doing my PhD at the University of St. Andrews, I was commuting a lot back and forth to Norway because I still uh, maintained my presence in my medical practice in Oslo. And then I spent a few weeks in St. Andrews, and then I went back and, and, and pretended that I was in Norway, and then back and forth, very, very, very hectic, extremely, extremely uh, uh, exhausting, actually. And then I traveled by... Tr by plane and by train and by bus, you know, very tiring trip from the airport to St. Andrews. St. Andrews is kind of uh, off, off uh, to the side there in Scotland. And I was, you know, taking a bus much of the time and spending a fair amount of time waiting for the bus to arrive. And then somebody just, I don't know how I got to know this, but Margaret Thatcher, she has said that Anyone who finds themselves traveling, in a, anyone who is older than 35 years of age who finds themselves traveling on a bus should know that their life has been a failure. <laughs> so, so whatever you do, don't travel by bus. <laughs> 
Well, Nietzsche is known for as one of the philosophers of, of extremity or, or extremism, you might say. He wrote books, thus spoke Zarathustra, which is written in a way like an Old Testament prophet speaks. It is a sort of thus says the Lord kind of, uh, kind of diction in that book. In Beyond Good and Evil, he talks like he is giving, giving the Sermon on the Mount. He talks aphoristically, like Jesus speaks on the Sermon on the Mount. I think he is quite conscious of how he is doing it, that he is writing this way. He is not discussing with you. He is not inviting you to discuss things. No more than the Old Testament prophets invited people for a dialogue. The Old Testament prophets were declarative. Well, there is once in a while, Isaiah will say, come, let us reason together. You know, but most of the time he's telling you to do what he tells you to do. <clears throat> and in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not inviting people to a dialogue exactly. He's telling how things are. He's sort of doing it in a declar declarative way. And you see that, <clears throat> that Nietzsche is, is, is hard at work here uh, in the 1880s. <clears throat> in 1888, the Adventists will have a conference in in uh, Minneapolis that <coughs> that is being remembered and, and Nietzsche will write t three books <coughs> The Twilight of the Idols, The Antichrist and a book Echehomo, Behold the Man uh, where he is also borrowing because Echehomo is the is what's there? Where is that from? You, you are uh, better in Latin than I am so now you say it Eke, you will say Echehomo Yeah, yeah so I, I, I learned a little church Latin. <laughs> so, echo homo, or ecce homo, behold the man. So you see, Nietzsche is in some ways appropriating biblical ways of thinking, biblical ways of speech, you might say. Uh, and he is thought to be one of the real uh, savage anti-Christian uh, voices in the, in the 19th uh, uh, century. Uh, and... Uh, rightly or wrongly, in some ways I think quite wrongly, but let's see what he says. He makes up a very fictitious account on why we think that some things are right and wrong. Where do, why do we think some things are right and wrong? You know, why, what is right? What is wrong? What is good? What is evil? And one of his books, you will recall, is called Beyond Good and Evil. <clears throat> so when he talks about the origin of morals, he creates a story. He does not try to prove it. He just makes it up in some ways. He just says that's how it was. Uh, and he says that the, in wholesome morality, where in originally in a sort of primeval age, people had good ideas about, uh, about morality, and they thought that being strong was a virtue. Strength is a virtue. It's good to be strong. That should not be seen as a, as a problem. That is not a problem at all. So wholesome morality, strength is seen as a virtue. And then he says that along come some people who say that, uh, who say that no, strength is not a virtue. Humility is a virtue. Uh, uh, and, they say, uh, and Nietzsche will call that unwholesome morality. In creeps another kind of morality. The morality of the weak, that the weak and the people who are, who are representing the weak are the religious people. Because the religious people, they are the weakest people. 
And in order to get an upper hand, in order for religion to really get the upper hand, the weak, the unwholesome weak, who are also the unwholesome religious, by the way, they make up this new, mor- new system of morality where now instead of strength being a good thing, instead of strength being, being uh, you know, uh, equal to virtue, then now humility is the good thing. So, uh, so by constructing that kind of moral system, now who has the upper hand? Well, the weak have the... Now, in, so, in terms of moral power, in terms of moral... Who occupies the moral high ground now? The strong or the weak? The moral high ground no, now belongs to the weak because it is humility. It is being weak that is now seen as virtuous. Do you follow me? Well, it gets worse. <coughs> this is just an introduction. This is just to, to help us understand, understand his paradigm. <coughs> Here is a a quotation from his book, The Genealogy of Morals. As is well known, the priests are the most evil enemies. But why? Because they are the most impotent. They are the weakest. You see what, what, you know, what he's doing here? It is because of their impotence that in them hatred grows to monstrous and uncanny proportions, to the most spiritual and poisonous kind of hate, hatred. He's going to apply this, he has in mind, who is he thinking about? He's thinking about religions. He's thinking about Christianity too, by the way. The truly great haters of the world have always been priests, likewise the most ingenious haters. Other kinds of spirit hardly come into consideration when compared with the spirit of priestly vengefulness. Now, so this is quite a, an, uh, what should I say, quite an expurgation or quite, you know, so, so linguistically, yeah, so, li- ling- so it's manliness, we're, yeah, yeah, yes, we're too. So sure, linguistically that's, that's true, but, but there, is no, there is no reward from, you know, sort of second-guessing Nietzsche why he makes up this, this story, because he, he just makes it up. Now, let's get to... There is a point to this, so, so bear with me. Reading on from his book, The Genealogy of Morals, now Nietzsche will go turn to Christianity and talk to, turn to what Christians have actually been saying. And here is a Christian that he quotes in his book, Tertullian. Tertullian is a pre-Constantinian uh, uh, theologian, there is much good to be said about him. He's one of the important voices in the Latin church, in the Western church before Augustine. He is probably the most important uh, thinker in the Latin Roman Catholic uh, uh, sort of domain before uh, Augustine. Uh, he, was, uh, he lived in Carthage. Carthage is where? That's in current Tunis. Current the city of Tunis in Tunisia is, uh, is, is the same place as Carthage. It's, they overlap. So there is Tertullian in, our, in, 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 in Tunis. Here is what Tertullian says about the future for those who are lost. However, there are other spectacles. That last eternal day of judgment. I am reading Tertullian now in Nietzsche. The context of my quotation is in Nietzsche's Genealogy of Morals. 
However, there are other spectacles, that last eternal day of judgment, ignored by nations, derided by them, when the accumulation of the years and all the many things which they produced will be burnt in a single fire. What a broad spectacle then appears. How I will be lost in admiration. How I will laugh. How I will rejoice. What do you think Nietzsche is trying to prove here? Well, he cannot prove to you the truth about the genealogy of morals because he has made that up. But he can prove something else, can't he? He can prove, he can use this as supporting evidence for thinking that there is in Christian morality, in the Christian paradigm, a notion of revenge. Can he? How I will laugh, you know, that's, you know, how I will be lost in admiration, how I will laugh, how I will rejoice. You know, how does Nietzsche, who supposedly is an anti-Christian, how does that resonate with his personal sensibilities? That's what is more important, than, because Nietzsche is seen as a person who savages Christianity, and is worse than Christianity, and he's the author of the notion of the Superman and the Übermensch and all those things, which is also probably not entirely, entirely, you know, posterity may make something of a person that he nev never intended to be. Well, you get the drift of it. Here, reading on from the genealogy of morals. Now, here he wants, he's discussing paradise. For what is the blessedness of that paradise? He's always com commenting on Christianity here in, in his books. For what is the blessedness of that paradise? Possibly we could quickly surmise it. Let me cover it up. Don't read the rest of it. You know, you're not seeing this. Now, let's do it. Possibly we could quickly surmise it. Now, you tell me what the, what the blessedness of paradise is without any guidance from Nietzsche. You're not seeing it. So, to be with Jesus, to be in a happy state, what, you know, to, I mean, you could, you could guess what sort of paradigms would you have. And now, but Nietzsche says, well, you might just think that you intuitively could have an idea about what paradise would be like, but let us not rely on, on intuition. Let us rely on the experts. Let's go to one of the experts. And so he goes to one of the experts. Possibly we could quickly surmise it, but it is better that we should be explicitly, it should be explicitly attested by an authority who in such matters is not to be disparaged. Thomas of Aquinas, the great teacher and saint. Who is Thomas Aquinas? He is in the 13th century. He is the greatest moral theologian in the Roman Catholic Church. He is not a, a, a sort of secondary source. He is still today the most revered moral theologian in Roman Catholicism. Uh, so here is Thomas, the great teacher and saint, blissful in the kingdom of heaven. They will see the sufferings of the damned so that their bliss should be more delightful to them. Now, what is Nietzsche doing? Why is he doing this? Because he is saying in his genealogy of morals, where the genealogy, the origin again, is completely fictitious. You don't need to take that into consideration. But he is saying that there is in Christianity a, a retributive instinct, and a willingness to, to, to accommodate retribution in a big way, and in, in, a, in a way that 
that seems to mute all whatever instincts there might be in human beings for compassion. He goes on. We're still reading from the genealogy of morals. Here he, t- he gets to Dante. Who is Dante? He is in the 13th century, and he wrote a book called The Divine Comedy, uh, where he has a... First he goes into the inferno, and then he goes to purgatory, and then he goes to paradise. He is the, the foremost of the Italian Renaissance authors. So here, inferno, purgatory, and paradise. Here is what Nietzsche thinks about Dante's inferno. Make up for what? Make up by what? Dante, as it seems to me, made a crass mistake when with awe-inspiring ingenuity, he placed that inscription over the gate of his hell. Me too made eternal love. What is that inscription? You know, that's like you go to the concentration camps in Nazi, in, that the Nazi uh, uh, regime did and said, Arbeit, Arbeit uh, macht frei. Yes, Arbeit macht frei. Uh, and here, me too made eternal love over the gate to his hell. At any rate, the following inscription would have been much better, uh, would have a much better right to stand over the gate of the Christian paradise and its eternal blessedness. Me too made eternal hate. And that's Nietzsche. Granted, of course, that the truth may rightly stand over the gate to a lie because Nietzsche doesn't believe in an afterlife. So, so there it goes. My point is, see, see, here, it, here is the, the bias here, and, 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 and I, I will admit to this as a, as, a very, as a personal bias. I do not think that you should approach the subject of, of you know, who is doing what in these, in, 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 when it comes to the metaphors of, of uh, retribution, language of retribution, language of torment. I do not want to approach that subject and just, and just do a finely tuned exegesis of each of these terms and each of these words and finally end up with a narrow victory on points. You see what I'm trying to say? That I will, do, I will win that exegetical discussion narrowly. You must not win this discussion narrowly. You must win this, this discussion in a big way. And you cannot just win it by doing, you know, sort of exegesis of the fine print. We can do that exegesis, and I, I, I have tried to do some of it in my projects on Revelation. We can do that exegesis. But sometimes you need to take a step back from the whole thing and just look, you know, to look if you have other resources with which to, 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 to uh, uh, approach a subject like that, and I will recommend Nietzsche as a as a resource for that. Here is my here is the end game on Nietzsche. Going back to Nietzsche now. Nietzsche died in the year 1900, and I have I, I I'm not an expert on Nietzsche. I don't know much about him actually. <coughs> I have I shouldn't say this, of course, <laughs> and I don't. I have already told you more than I know about Nietzsche, <laughs> which, would, which would be a terrible thing <laughs> if that were true. 
but <coughs> I have read a thing or two about him, and I, and I, I, I primary sources too, and and I am uh, I have just I was hoping I would have gotten my book before uh, this class because I, I I bought a book uh, about uh, Nietzsche in Turin, Nietzsche in Torino, uh, in eighteen eighty nine. Nietzsche was in Torino, and maybe his mind is becoming destabilized. He ended up very mentally, severely mentally ill. And, and some people think that they see harbingers of mental illness in his writing before 1889, which could be the case. It's hard to say. Uh, you know, by, by this time, he, had, he was in an intimate relationship earlier in his career with the composer Richard Wagner, he was a, a great admirer of Wagner, and he was also a, a very, very, very accomplished mus musician himself. <clears throat> but in 1889, he is in Torino, and there is a man. There is somebody, this is from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, but I wanted to read a book-length treatment of the subject because I'd like to see, is it you know, true? I asked my daughter, who is, knows much more about Nietzsche than I do, and she knew the story, but she couldn't tell me whether... It, whether it is, there is a way to verify it. But the story is like this, that in 1889, Nietzsche is in Torino, and he sees somebody flogging a horse. And, 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 then, and, and it moves him. He is totally devastated by this scene of somebody flogging the horse. So he throws himself on the neck of the horse to protect the horse. And... and uh, uh, and people say that that's when he, when he cracked, when he cracked mentally at the sight of that horse being flogged. Well, this is the uh, paradigm. I would rather take a step back from the whole scenario of sort of Christian thinking on the subject of retribution and torment and all that and listen to Nietzsche for a moment. His inventory of Christian thought on the subject of retribution which he finds repugnant. And then I couldn't care, you know, it wouldn't be so important what he says about this and that. It is better to retain whatever little residue there might be of compassion in humanity, in natural sense, to retain a little of the residue of compassion and throw yourself around the neck of the horse. You see, that's the problem. We cannot solve this by, by, you know, fine measures, you know, measuring it up and say, well, we won that argument, you know, that exegetical argument. We won it narrowly. You have to win this one big one. There is a, there is a statue out here on campus, the statue of the Good Samaritan. Who is the Good Samaritan in sort of metaphoric terms? Who is our moral teacher in the statue of the Good Samaritan? Nietzsche. He's a Nietzschean figure. He is somebody who is, who is our antagonist. He is our theological antagonist. He is the worst person, you know, but he is the person who just what? He's a person who doesn't have to decide, who doesn't have to do fine-tuned exegesis of texts. He knows the need when he sees it. You know, he, he knows what to do, unconditioned by theology. See, theological conditioning can sometimes be very devastating to your spiritual health. And Nietzsche takes, Nietzsche takes, you know, a, takes a perspective. Let's not, do, let's not do this, you know, because I heard somebody 
Yes, thank you. <laughs> but I, I heard somebody the other day, a, a certain preacher, very influential in the U.S., give a sermon exactly the opposite of what I'm trying to do now. And just loud applause in the audience. Audience applause could be very dangerous to, our, to, the, <laughs> to the quality of our argument. You see, but but you, see that, you see the perspective. Now, let's just admit that we are conditioned in so many ways, and so am I. You know, let's just admit that there is all kinds of conditioning inside Adventism, outside Adventism. But I think sometimes, and I think that is what Jesus is doing in, this, in the Good Samaritan story. In the Good Samaritan story, he walks away from theology, end of the theological argument, in with the narrative, in with somebody who has retained some intuition for how to behave in the face of human suffering. Somebody who's willing to throw themselves on the neck of the horse. You know, and here is this person who is seen as hostile to Christianity, but he certainly seems to have an intuition, to have retained an intuition for how a child of God, you know, a human being should behave in the face of, of suffering. See, this eagerness of theology to condone suffering and to, to find ways to... to the, the, the premise is wrong and pity us that history took us in such, in such, uh, uh, in such ways. And, and, and yes, I think that is a cosmic conflict uh, consequence that the God of the Bible has been seen as a God who is, you know, if you don't give him retribution, he will not be, a, a, you know, we cannot, we cannot have him as our God, as it were. See what I'm trying to say here? Anyway, I, I just like the fact that Nietzsche hugged that horse. And I think there is theological merit to it. That's uh, what, and I'm, I will tell you, it, when I have read the book on Nietzsche and Torin, I will tell you whether uh, that book uh, verifies it or not. So uh, now, whatever people say negatively in the future, when you hear people say negative things about Nietzsche, then you should say, well, he hugged the horse. <laughs> so... So uh, he will not be looking quite as bad to us. <coughs> okay, one more thing then, uh, the remaining mi minutes, and that is for Daniel, has uh, repeatedly brought up to us the question of the, uh, the mark of the beast and the seal of God that we did not discuss as, no as much as she would have liked. Uh, and, uh, and then uh, I thought, well, let's do it now rather than at the end because it might seem anticlimactic if we do it at the end. <coughs> In Revelation 13, verses 16 and 17, it says that the opposing power causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand uh, or on the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell who does not have the mark, that is, the name of, uh, name of the beast or the number of its name. And then Revelation 7, 2 and 3, I saw another angel having the seal of God, seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to damage the earth and sea, saying, do not damage the earth or the sea or the trees until we have marked the servants of God with a seal on their foreheads. So here are these two, uh, two elements, the mark of the beast and the seal of God. You see that they are uh, <coughs> not uh, happening, well, they're not in the narrative sequence, they are not in the same narrative sequence, but they are, 
they are in Revelation in the same temporal sequence, the time of the end. That's where they are occurring, in the same temporal sequence. And then I would like to <coughs> do this, uh, and we will do it uh, quickly, and next time we will do Revelation 21. <laughs> so, when we look at the mark of the beast, how will I like to add that up? I would like to say that all that the opposing side in the conflict is doing is imitative. It is that the opposing side is operating on, on the, with the method of imitation. It is not coming out and saying, I am the devil. It is coming out in somebody else's, you know, like I said, I said to... Uh, when I went to gave my paper at Andrews, I gave a, an interpretation of the seals at, uh, when I was at Andrews University of the seven seals that is at odds with the usual Adventist interpretation because I said that the first, the white horse uh, in the seal sequence is, uh, is, uh, is not uh, Jesus and the gospel, it is deception. So I'm saying that uh, that uh, that somebody has stolen Jesus's horse because Jesus has a white horse, but somebody else rides on the white horse. So anyway, we have done this. We have done this quite meticulously when we were in Revelation 12, 13, 14. So imitation, and then is there coercion? Is the mark of the beast a coercive phenomenon? It is clearly coercive. You know, there is force. Unless you do that, then you are sanctioned. So it's coercive. Now, I'm also saying that it is in competition. It is in competition with the seal of God. Because there are two, there are two, two competing intents playing out here. God with his intention and, and the opposing side with it, its intention. And I'm saying that all these signs are revelatory because in some ways the opposing side ultimately will show its hand the way it pushes its, its uh, sign here, you might say. And then the seal of God, you know, here, you know, what is the original seal of God then since the mark of the beast is imitative of something God is doing? So that is a, an issue here. What, what's then the original? So in some ways you move from the imitation to the original. In some ways, of course, you'll have to move from the original to you have to know the original to, to sort of appreciate the imitation. Now, I will say that the seal of God is non-coercive, that that is a hallmark of God's way of doing it. It is competitive. It does seek to, to replace or to preempt the mark of the beast. It is also revelatory. So the demonic reality will in some ways be exemplified by its mark, and the divine reality will also, to some extent, be exemplified, will, will sort of be, be, be distilled or, or, or revealed by its mark. And then, then you can see, just uh, these texts I will not read, but I will mention them. Revelation 14, 9 to 10, you see that there, this is a very big issue in the book of Revelation. Uh, verse 11, same thing, big issue, still talking about the mark of the beast. Revelation 16.2, still working on this issue. It is very much a preoccupation in the book of Revelation. Revelation 19.20, more the same. You know that it returns to that, that decision. And Revelation 24, also uh, very much preoccupied with, 
with this issue. So, now, what about it? You know, the Adventist project has, has <coughs> put some prestige on the line to put the Sabbath into this, uh, this uh, paradigm or this issue. And, and uh, now, I'm not doing a pitch for my book, uh, but I have done a much better job describing these issues in this book than I will try to do here. But there are some echoes of the Sabbath in Revelation. There is an echo of the fourth commandment in Revelation 14.7. There is an echo of Isaiah 62.23 in Revelation 15.4. All nations will come and worship before you. Isaiah 66.23 says, it will happen Sabbath after Sabbath and new moon after new moon. All nations will come and worship before you. So there is an echo of that text in Revelation 15.4 when it's all over. Then there is an echo in, of sorts <coughs> of text in the Old Testament. Do not damage in 7.3, Revelation 7.3, do not damage the earth or the sea or the trees until we have marked the servants of our God with a seal on their foreheads. The key term here is their foreheads. And the Old Testament background text for this is in Deuteronomy. You can find it there. Putting, it's not just putting the commandments of God into you know, the Ten Commandments here. That is a way we have construed it much too narrow. If we look at these texts that talk about putting something on a person's forehead in Exodus 13.9, Exodus 13.16, and in Deuteronomy 6.4-9, we obviously have to think in broad terms. The Old Testament ethic, in Deuteronomy especially, is narratival. It rehearses a narrative. It rehearses God's story. So this is the story of God that is put into here. Not just the ethical, the Ten Commandments. It is the whole story that is going to be sort of imprinted on somebody's forehead, as it were. It is obviously not an external mark. It is just a figure of something that, that, gets, that, that is formative. What he's talking about here is spiritual formation, in some ways to use more modern ter terminology. And then a quotation in my book where I show that the sort of paradigm within which the Sabbath is set... The, the, the framework for the Sabbath is as a sign of revelation. It is an Offenbarungszeichen, a revelatory sign, as a, a person, a German writer, has done on a, in a dissertation on, on, on this term. So, <clears throat> shall we do uh, two more minutes? Ellen G. White, she writes <clears throat> in the, what is thought in... in Quite still so quite influential in the Adventist paradigm. Through the two great errors, the immortality of the soul and Sunday sacredness, Satan will bring the people under his deceptions, while the former lays the foundation of spiritualism. That is to say that, you have that there is natural immortality with, with a human being. The latter creates a bond of sympathy with Rome. The Protestants of the United States will be foremost in stretching their hands across the Gulf to grasp the hand of spiritualism. The best-selling book in America right now is a book written by the father of a six-year-old boy. In a, he, the father is a pastor in Nebraska who has his boy, his six-year-old son, had had uh, 
when he was six, I think he's older now, when he was six, he had a perforated appendix and, uh, and had a cardiac arrest and he went to heaven. And he has dictated or dicta dictated the content of this book to his pastor father. And uh, the book has sold 1.5 million, it's printed 1.5 million copies in the U.S. right now. And the title of the book is Heaven is Real, where he is sort of, you know, holding, holding up this paradigm of, of, a, of, a, of a, that kind of an anthropology. Now, so that's what Ellen White means by spiritualism. They will reach over the abyss to cl clasp the hands with the Roman power, and under the influence of this threefold union, this country will follow in the steps of Rome in trampling on the rights of conscience. I'm not going to defend everything that she says there or, or, or explain it. Uh, the person, in, in political terms, the person who formalized the relationship between so-called Protestant America and, 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 uh, uh, and what, what I will not call I will not call it the papacy. I will call it political Christianity. I want to diffuse the terminology here. The per person who, the person in America, the president in America, who who forged the relationship between political Christianity was Ronald Reagan. That's uh, and they together did uh, had a project, with, you know, with the communist world. Now, finally, <coughs> some ifs, ands, or buts here. Here is what I think. The Sabbath is a plausible candidate for God's sign in the final confrontation of signs. It's a plausible candidate. If the Sabbath is to play that role, and this is my most important point, if the Sabbath is to play that role, it can only do so to the extent that it has come home to its actual meaning. I do not think that the Sabbath as, con as, con as currently seen in the Adventist community is up to shouldering that kind of responsibility. I do not think, I think the Sabbath in its current shape is seriously alienated from its actual meaning. And serious work needs to be done for the Sabbath to be able to play, any, play a role envisioned here. And I would love to, to defend that thesis in, in some other context. The opposing and the competing and opposing sign will only be the mark of the beast if and when it deploys coercion. So there are some, some ifs, ands, or buts here. I had to look this term up on my, because I didn't know how to spell ifs, ands, or buts. <laughs> so, I, <laughs> so I googled it. <laughs> I, go, I googled it, and then I got one, one, uh, one thing that came up was on <clears throat> sex in the city with buts spelt with two t's. <laughs> and, the, and the other one was a, a thing on smoking cessation. Butts was also spelt, <laughs> spelt with two T's. So, uh, uh, anyway, we need, to, we need to leave off here. And the bottom line here is that very important issues are at stake here in the pre, in the sort of, in the present age, you might say, before the second, before the second coming of Jesus.